How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 151. Did you just, like, shake your hands after the sync clap? Yes. Did you do it that hard? Yeah, it was pretty hard. Oh, God. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I now had to make, like, a real distinct, powerful clap from this, this show. Right. I've noticed. Okay. Like, I sometimes legitimately give myself ringing ears by, like, Ooh, doing it too geez. close to my, my face. Yeah. No, I get that. That's fair enough. You want to be good at it. But How yeah. are you, Jake? I'm, I'm doing all right. Yeah, it's been it's been a long long week. Yeah, not it's falling asleep good. at work. No, definitely not. <laughs> we didn't talk about this. I actually wanted to give a quick shout out. We got uh, I should say I got a message, but I guess we got a message on Instagram in the last week from uh, someone very special, new friend of the show. I would say. Okay. So I got a message the other day from a Lucas friend, friend of the show, Lucas friend, who was uh, an actor in a little film we talked about, Nit Ram. Oh, wow. Who messaged me and wanted to congratulate the both of us on a great review of Nipram. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a cool message to get. So I wanted to give him a shout out. He, pl- of course, plays the car salesman, who, uh, of course, drives a uh, S.E. Davis around. At, well, he doesn't drive, but he's in the back seat. And then, of course, he, uh, I guess, abuses Nipram. Is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, and um, it's he, a pretty confronting scene we discussed. Over yeah, there. yeah. Well, he he definitely mentioned to me it was I didn't realize people walked out of that scene. It's a I didn't realize I was that bad. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't think that's the yeah, case. That's crazy. <laughs> I completely forgot about that part. Yeah, people walked out. Yeah, no, it's crazy. But um, no, I just want to give him a shout out because just reminds me. It's like, damn, I forget how much reach we have sometimes yeah. on this podcast. You get people more. So we got people working on the films. Listening well, to, it's to credits to Lucas, Lucas Friends acting mm, exactly. in that scene to make people so uncomfortable. Exactly. Out. Exactly right. No. Which that film is, as we discussed on that episode, uh, quite confronting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, but definitely we enjoyed seeing it for, obviously, you know, the importance of it. Yeah. And well, it's still probably one of the best films this year, especially from Australia. Yeah, so, absolutely. Well, listen to our review. <laughs> no dramas. Well, jumping back to this week, Jake, have yes, you of course. a lovely trivia fact for me for the film of the week? I do. So, of course, this week we're talking about Dune, which is a little intimidating, is it not, to talk about a film like this? I 100% agree. Um, but, of course, it is not the first adaptation of the novel Dune. There are two notable ones, of course, one from David Lynch in 1984, and then there is a miniseries from the year 2000 that both of which cover the entirety of the novel's story. Of course, this is notably part one, as it says at the, as at the beginning of the film. So, actually, and this is according to IMDb, this could be a little bit uh, wrong, the the maths behind this, but I thought this was interesting. So, the, the Lynch version of Dune, which I actually did watch in the last week, and I will talk about that mm-hmm. as well, uh, it pretty much covers the events that the 2021 film covers, Within the first 98 minutes of the film, and of course the film is 137 minutes, so that's roughly about 71% of that film uh, is what is covered in part one of the 2021 Dune. Okay. While respectively, the 2000 miniseries covers about 104 minutes out of 270. So that's close to around 38%. So I find that very interesting that if you were to split the book right in the middle and call it, say, the end of part one, Dune, is the midpoint of the story, if you mm-hmm. want to call it that. It's interesting to see that the other two adaptations, the Lynch film and then the 2000 miniseries, focus on different parts. So the Lynch version spends most of the film doing the first half of the book. The miniseries does most of the second half of the book. That, of course, this film very much splits right in the middle, from what I understand. Okay. So, so I thought that was very interesting. 
We should only be ex- expecting one sequel to this, so it's only meant to be two yes, films. Yes, part one and part two. That's okay. what I understand. Interesting. Um, which is now, of course, greenlit, so that will come out in a couple of years. Yeah, beautiful. Well, um, I've got an interesting one here, and this sort of uh, shows the... Um, the import, I guess, the grand scale, even in and desire to do this film, mm. um, I find really interesting. Uh, composer Hans Zimmer was such a big fan of the novel Dune that he turned down working with Christopher Nolan on 2020's Tenant. Mm. Um, yes, even though they collaborate quite consistently. And then on top of that, uh, Denise Villeneuve, obviously the director of this film, turned down uh, the opportunity to direct Bond's No Time to Die, which also came Yeah, out. that surprised me. Yeah, you're right. It's ironic, you're right. They came out pretty much at the same time. <laughs> yeah, and just to do this film. So, And obviously we'll talk a little bit later about how big and stacked this cast is. Mm. It's sort of mind-boggling how stacked <laughs> it is at one point in time in the film. But we'll save that for the uh, second half of the of film. Of course, of course. But to I guess to, to give a little preview or spoiler into our thoughts on the film, Zeke, there is a 1,100 films you must watch before you die poster behind you. Uh, obviously, it predates the release of this version of Dune. In fact, you know what I should check? You give your answer, Zeke. Yes. Do you think the film deserves to be in that poster? While I go and check if the 1984 version of Dune is on the poster. Yeah, no because worries. Because, of course, the 2021 version would not be. So what did you think, Zeke? Uh, to my extent, I actually do believe this film should be on your uh, 1,100 films to watch before you uh, in your lifetime, basically. Mm. I think this 100% belongs on that poster. Very exciting. What about you, Jake? Um, I would agree. I think this totally should be on the poster for, um, I don't want to say obvious reasons, but, yeah, I think... There's definitely something about this film that warrants its place amongst other films. And I just did a quick scan. The 1984 version is not on the poster, although that doesn't surprise me too much. Mm. But, of course, we'll, we'll get into that soon. Have you been watching anything in the last week, Zeke? Um, yeah, look, I, I did watch majority of one film, but I'll probably hold off until next week to give the full uh, rundown. Of okay. it. It's been a very um, scaffolded week for me. Mm. Um, so it's... And just finding my feet and actually having a bit of free time is a bit daunting sometimes, and um, especially with we have an influx of films that you've discussed over the last few weeks that have come to streaming platforms. I have uh, sort of kept running the uh, show mill. Um, I did finish season five of F is for Family. Very nice. And And that's it? That's the whole series? Yeah. Look, that is so surprising to me. Interesting. Doesn't feel like it? Doesn't. I think there's bar maybe a two-minute... Uh, you know the f- the final scene really doesn't feel like it feels like there's one more season in the uh, mm. in the barrel. Um, okay, they could definitely end it on that season, I guess. But I guess it, what it comes back to is is what that show is. I'll be you know hyperbolized is a sort of a look into a family's life in the early seventies, right? Yeah. Um, and so the conclusion of the show would just be life keeps going on really i mean that's yeah, the only for way yeah sure i mean in a lot of ways that's the bojack ending is that yeah. thing sort of continue there is sort of a conclusiveness to it but the mentality of life goes on is still present for sure yeah yeah so maybe the that that makes the ending very um uh appropriate i guess um there's definitely a uh, a little nod to obviously you know Bill Burr being the one of the central characters of the show being you know the voice of Frank, but mm. obviously um, 
you know, is taking it from the perspective of, you know, he, when he was a kid. So I yeah. think it's no, um, no surprise that, you know, Billy is the one that's like based off him. Yeah, um, definitely. Well, it, it's almost like Bilbo's playing his father in, in the show. Yeah. And then he represents his son. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. They make a little comedian joke in the, the final episode. Oh, okay. This is very like, like that Bill should become a comedian. Interesting. Like, okay. okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, which gave it a bit of finality, but yeah, it, very it, subtle, but interesting. I will have to check it out. I need to watch one of those like recaps because it's been a while. I binged all four seasons and then sort of checked out. So it's a good season. Probably yeah. not the best season of the show. Um, okay. I'd say it's, you know I think four is probably my favorite season. So, mm. um, but yeah, it was a, you know it was a fun show. It's always nice having you know good animated shows. Um, I did finish the first season of Cowboy Bebop. Um, oh yeah. Uh, and I enjoyed it. Now I've, you know, obviously off the air. Had you have wee friends. With, I do have um, who don't like it as much. I actually have no problem with it at all. Yeah, as someone that, but can understand source material elitism is what I call it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Protectionism. Yeah, with yeah. it, whether it's a book or a sh- or an anime. It's like whenever uh, another adaptation comes in, there's always people there with like. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure Dune has its, uh, um, you know, book fan critics. Hundred percent. This is different from the book. I have, I have no idea if it's how different it is from yeah. the book, but but I'm sure they exist. So I get what you mean. I enjoyed it. I thought it was probably the closest thing I've ever seen until like a Firefly adaptation. Yep. In t- which is nice. I've kind of gone a bit on a bit of a sci-fi tear between this and the film of the week, so that was kind yeah, of cool. cool. Um. And the only other show I've caught, I started obviously, you know, finishing Parks and Rec in the last couple of weeks, as, as sad as that was, was Aww. I actually legitimately enjoyed that show from start to finish, I think. I think for, it is amazing to see a lot of those actors, like, like when you get to see actors where their start point is and like, like Chris Pratt just shooting into space halfway, you know, towards the back end of the show, but you can tell. Yep. It's just crazy. Um, and the last season's very sincere and gives a lot of sort of self-appreciation, like appreciation for its audience, mm. appreciation for... So it's the opposite of Efforts for Family. It's a very clear, distinctive finale. Oh, yeah. The last episode leaves nut, like, is very, like... Because what it does is it... Uh, I'll run through, like, the basic last... The last episode premise is they go to each character who's leaving, like, the parks department and then they go, what are they in the future? And they do, like, mm. a future, like five six years in the future and they get okay. like that sort of thing for every centralized character relative to like you know the main character who you know is amy Poller's leslie nope which is just mm. she's by far the highlight of that show she is i think that show is so much better than the office like and willing to defend it for that reason <laughs> i think she is significantly more balanced and rounded compared to steve carell's right. uh, michael scott but that's fair enough. Well, I, I don't have frame of reference to make the argument, so I can't can't participate in that. Yeah, <laughs> but that's fair. No, that's fair enough. And yeah, that's now exciting. I've just moved into another sitcom, casual sitcom, Superstore. Superstore, which is fine. Is that the web series or not? It's technically it's got it's on Netflix. It's got five seasons. I think it did wow. start as a YouTube series and then um, transitioned, kind of like that the, must have the been deal quick, with five seasons. Yeah. Um, wow. Since Cobra Kai is very similar, 
which that ooh, that comes out. That feels like it comes out every five minutes. Cobra Kai. Yeah, I uh, swear every time I blink, there's a new season on the season, way. Season season four comes out New Year's Eve. That's insane. I remember thinking about third season. I was like, Jesus Christ, this, didn't this just come out? Yeah. I, so I'm, I'm really glad I'm not working New Year's Eve now because now I just want binge Cobra Kai. <laughs> <laughs> we were just like watching random episodes of the week, and I was like, man, this is so cheesy, but it's so good. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely would like to get the Karate Kid in before that flu season gets. Oh, definitely. Like finish the full round. I would love to rewatch the Jaden Smith one because I, you know, it's funny. It's funny. We're going to talk about this in a bit, but I remember like the seeing that the, the Jaden Smith version of the Karate Kid in cinemas. I just remember like it. It's not like an epic film, but I remember like there's a lot of weight to the things that have like the bullies are like really really intense, mm. um, and like the fight scenes towards the end obviously are like really in, like. Yeah, like, it grabs you. I remember being like, wow, like, the sound design, this, like... I remember being enamoured by it. I definitely feel that even in, in, like, the Cobra Kai show. It's like... Okay. Like, we had this big debate because, like, a lot of those actors aren't, like, named actors by by any stretch. Or if they were named actors, they're named actors from the original Karate Kid movies. Right, that's right. It's like your Ralph Macchios and, you know, William Zapka and stuff like that. But it's like, they're not by any stretch showing a lot of like acting flexing it's very like high school drama okay performances the stuff that gives you on board is the choreography and stuff because all of them have to like learn a degree of like actual karate and stuff and some of them are like really good at it by the end like by the second or third season there are like full action sequences that are like one shotters that go for like five minutes that's fantastic and you're just blown away by the 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 choreography in it you're like well this is probably the reason i keep watching because it's like this sort of stuff because it's very cheesy 80s drama yeah but it's like meant to be so it's sort of got that stranger things effect you know even though they take it in a much serious, more serious direction for that show. It's interesting because I was just thinking about this, like the, the, the physical, not physical, I guess, because you can't physically punch the audience, but like the sound design around punching, especially in a theater mm. and like how that can actually, how you make it sound like, oh, wow, that's mm. an impactful punch. And I just, I remember things like the karate kid and just clicking for me and it worked in that sense. But then you have the other way around. I, I think of, there's one scene in Eternals where a character gets hit from the back of the head, like as a surprise, knock this character out in mid montage and uh, mid monologue, and it's just hilarious because it wasn't that strong. Mm-hmm. It was almost like a boop, and like yeah. it added to the comedy of that scene. I, for some reason, I just remember that. I thought it was really funny, but no, it's anyway, no, it's good. Cool. I do want to get onto that because I've seen. You know what? No, I have not seen the original Karate Kid. I just realized that. Yeah, it's neither. Damn, Man, you didn't really need it for the for the show which right. was great like because they sort of cover particularly in the first season they cover the first movie because that's kind of the, the center point for it and yeah. they actually cut back to physical scenes from the interesting movie in flashbacks so it's, it's like, like the literal scene yeah wow okay yeah, they just use it reuse it yeah, but they what enough. they do is obviously it's you know it's set from um ralph Macchio's character's point of view in the movie yeah and it's flipped set from like johnny lawrence's point of view in the the first season so sort of how the 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 scenes have different vision like different um perspectives interesting stuff which helps balance out a little bit but um it's just fun dumb great summer thing to watch you know yeah for sure um but superstore back to that was yeah i think it was a youtube original that got just picked up by i don't even know it got picked up by netflix i think it's just had five like seasons and then that eventually got bought out by Netflix or something. Yeah, I yeah. Don't know what the deal is. It's fine. It makes you laugh a little bit, but 
it's very like B show, like a B comedy. Okay. It feels like it's like just a, okay. Like I don't really see how they got five seasons out of it, so I'm curious to see where it goes. Yeah, but. well, there's lots of things get lots of viewership for no reason. <laughs> get plenty of seasons. So. Eleven seasons of Walking Dead. <laughs> five God. seasons of Fear the Walking Dead. Jesus Christ. Isn't it just the same show with worse characters? Well, it's case like it's from Case Zero, so like the first season's kind of interesting because you're watching the outbreak happen. Yeah, but then yeah, after like two or three seasons, it's like just the same show because everything's all clearly zombie apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what about you, Jake? Repetitive. No, well, um, I haven't really watched much. I feel like I like I said I watched the 1984 version of Doom, but. That almost feels more appropriate to talk about within the actual discussion of the film mm. itself because it's just going to be me directly comparing the two Beautiful. in terms of tone and style and all of that. But yeah, even in terms of uh, career updates, I finally did those videos I said four weeks in a row I'd do. Yeah. <laughs> a bit like that sometimes. Yeah, now it's got to get paid. <laughs> Exciting time, Zeke. Yeah, no like dramas. That's it. Well, I guess it's time we might as well just move into our Let's film of the it. week. Let's jump right in. But Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Dune. The outsiders ravage our land. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. So you're going tomorrow. Yes, I'm going tomorrow with the advanced team. I'd like you to take me with you. Are you trying to give me court-martial? Can I trust you with something? I've been having dreams about a girl falling in battle. Felt like a vision. Dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake. To the future of House Atreides. You have to be ready. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. They're not human, they're brutal. What if I'm not dead? You'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. Come on! My son. Paul Atreides, a brilliant and gifted young man born into a great destiny beyond his understanding, must travel to the most dangerous planet in the universe to ensure that the future of his family and his people. As malevolent forces explode into conflict over the planet's exclusive supply of the most precious resource in existence, a commodity capable of unlocking humanity's greatest potential, only those who can conquer their fear will survive. Yeah, so it wasn't water... That was our prediction last week. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's It wasn't just, a bad guess, but it wasn't water. Uh, well, it makes you have really blue eyes, like water. <laughs> okay. It's, just, it's basically, it's just spice, isn't it, really? Yeah, it. yeah, it's um, called spice. Yeah, so, I mean, we're going to have fun with that one. Cause we, so, we obviously didn't know anything about Dune or the lore behind Dune until seeing this film, and I did watch the 84 version after watching... Is it Denis Villeneuve or Villeneuve? I don't know how many syllables there are. I keep... Villeneuve. Yeah, I'm guessing it's Villeneuve. That's how it's spelled, at least. Yeah. But um, So I ended up watching that version first and then backtracking from that point, which 
I'll just say this. I'm kind of glad because that 84 version is so nonsensical and the plot is so ridiculous. I cannot tell what in God's name is happening in that film. Mm-hmm. So at least it had some frame of reference <laughs> in the in the 2021 version in day, that, at least, that at least tries to explain what's going on from scene yeah. to scene. My goodness. But anyway, so Zeke, um, we saw these separately, so we actually respectively have no idea, no idea what we think of the film. This is true. Because we both would put it put it on our poster, so neither of us hate it, <laughs> assuming from that. But Zeke, please elaborate. Did you like Dune? I think this film is like... The best way of describing it, I feel, was it was an amalgamation of Lord of the Rings met... Um, Game of Thrones earlier mm. seasons and okay. by that I mean the I don't think I've watched a film of this sort of epical fortitude in a very long time and mm. when I say epic I mean the word is you know it's it's denotative understanding it's just the scale of everything is just grandiose and it and it it commands that sort of attention and energy in order for you to fully indulge and enjoy it, mm. which is the same sort of energy that the original Lord of the Rings films gave, I think, that level of scale and attention to detail. And I, I definitely think this film is probably the reverse of, like, The Two Towers. Like, it's really quite full-on at the start and then okay. kind of eases out a little bit more. Right, yep. Which is the kind of the inverse story. Um, but still gives time for you to understand law. It's patient. You have to be patient with it. And you you really do have to come give your full energy to it because if you don't, you'll fall behind. And if you fall behind, you'll become a disinterest very quickly. Yeah. Well, to, to that point, yeah. And having seen both versions, I, I think I just kind of came to the conclusion that this story that originates from, you know, the novel, of course, it's just a very hard story to do. So, and keep in mind, I walked into this film as well with my arms a little bit crossed. Like, <laughs> well, Blade Runner 2049 wasn't great. So, you know, another venture of sci-fi from Villeneuve. Ugh. I wasn't I wasn't that negative, of course. Going mm. to, but, like, I kind of had that in the back of my head of, do I have a Villeneuve problem? And I don't think I do because I think Arrival's great. I think Prisoners is great. I think Sicario's great. It was just Blade Runner that I was disappointed mm. with. And very specific things about Blade Runner. We talked about it in our director's corner. Yeah. What, like about 15 16 weeks ago um so i kind of was watching it sort of yeah with my arms crossed trying to not look for the flaws but was like okay what's so special about this and i think the more i thought about it over time i don't have the same complaints as i did with blade runner in terms of oh well i found the lighting as great as it is it's not really motivated and it, nothing happens for the first hour and you know the things that i think of when i talk about 2049 I don't have those complaints here. It's like, I think this tells the story in terms of pacing really, really well. Yeah. I actually found it excellently spread out and you're right, you sort of have to pay attention and um, really digest, especially because of the Lynch version, there's just voiceover constantly. Every five minutes is a character just telling the camera what they're thinking and what's the next part of the plot mm. because it, I guess they think it's that convoluted. And at the end of the day, the, it, the whole film's about you know, obviously there's the aspect of destiny and like the one and, and all of that, but it's also about resource management and, and colonism in a lot of ways. And 
Like, these ideas that aren't that overly complicated. Yeah. But I think part of that as well is the film is presented in such a grand scale where the soundscape and the visuals are so just just immaculate um, that it is overwhelming in that sense. And I, I sit there trying to be like, why am I not giving Dune, like, a five-star review? I couldn't really tell you, even though I don't feel that. But I think there's just so much to appreciate about this for uh, for a story that is really really hard to tell clearly it's a hard story to get out there it's it's just i i think that that's probably the best way of, of sort of surmising what we what what it is it's 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 an intense two and a half hours mm. um and it's it really is probably quite it's a lot of, it's very um lore dense in the yes um, which makes a lot of um, names, character or planet names, and yeah, which is what makes, for the most part, a lot of like hurdles in a in a film that's trying to have pacing fluidity. And the way that he's managed to balance that is is full credit to him because mm. you don't ever feel n- not invested in it. And I think yeah. that that's a, a mixture of of sort of using all of the tools to to your best ability. Um, you know, from very excellent casting and direction, because I don't think there's a single poor performance in this. Um, no, from not. from top to bottom, from and on top of that, I I think that the the soundtrack that we talked about with you know you know what Zimmer's composed here is just yep. magnificent in in motifs and geographical balancing and um and also just feeling very epic um in in scope. Um, we really get a feeling that we are such a small, minuscule observer to this grander yeah, sort of story yeah. going on. With, um, the, with that literal scale. And I made the joke when I walked out. I was like, that was the most intense cinematic experience I've had since Shrek 4D. In that my chair literally was shaking when like the, the ships were flying around. And just like the speaker sounded like they were about to explode. But it wasn't, you know... It wasn't broken, I, I, you know. The, the, I could still hear the dialogue, and you know, I think the sound mix, especially, is just fantastic. Yeah, it's got a very good film. chance to be taken up. Those some of those text technical Oscars oh, for it's, sure. It's gonna sweep. It's gonna um, sweep. But it's yeah. I think it's one of those things that you feel like you're going in and you're exploring the lore, and you you have a kind of a decent understanding by the end of the film. But it kind of makes you want to go on and, and research more about, you know, this world. Want to be in this world yeah, more, explore yeah. and understand stuff. Well, I was excited watching the Lynch but Like, oh, I get to see how the rest of the story plays out. Mm. You know, when I get to that 95-minute point that IMDb said, it's like, all right, now from this point on, the it's all a new story. I was excited for that. I was excited to learn more about the world and, and what all the mysteries were because this film very much sets up a lot of mysteries that it doesn't pay off. Mm-hmm. And I think what's so interesting about that, and I appreciate this, is just how much, just how ballsy it is for them to go into a film like this that, you're right, is reminiscent of Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or, or Harry Potter or all these long-form series. Or like when you watch The Force Awakens, knowing, well, this is just the first part. Mm-hmm. There are more parts coming. And I know a lot of people complained ahead of time that this was going to feel like just a, an ad for the second film. I did not feel that way whatsoever. No, This felt like a very fulfilling chapter of the journey. It didn't feel like it was promoting it and i love the balls for them to just make up a part one without any greenlit uh part two or sequel yeah like it was just completely let's commit to this and if we don't get part two then then we just don't get part two and we are gonna get it now it's greenlit and it's funded and Mm -hmm. it's ready to go 
but I appreciate the balls of that because you're right. It's a very dense story. There's a lot of detail to to get right, and, and especially watching and the now we'll be re- yeah now we'll be rewarded for it yes. because we'll get to look at both films. Both will probably be two and a half hours, three hours, maybe even for the second one. And it's mm-hmm. like then we would have probably. gotten five. <laughs> we've got five full hours in this world, and let's be real. Then you know maybe they might release extended cuts in years to come where yeah, there's an extra 20, 30 minutes here or there, and. It's um it is really that is quite exciting and I agree that it takes serious clout to be committed to being like this is going to need to be two parts to fully capitalize on the world that we're in and we we are we are treated because this film does still give you a bit of everything and doesn't feel like an ad for the second film um no well like, within the the events that are happening here it feels like Paul has a an arc. It's yeah. obviously part of a wider story, but he has an arc that he fulfills by the end of this part one. Yeah. So it feels fulfilling in that way. Now, I will quickly say, having seen this with Steven, who's a huge Dune fan, he's read all the books and he's seen the original film and yada, yada, yada. He actually was surprised and a little confused at the point they decided to split these films, which as someone, well, to be fair, now I know how the rest of the story goes, but when I saw it at the time, it felt very natural. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, and I guess we're in spoiler mode now, so yeah. go watch this film. It's excellent. You see it in a theatre. <laughs> 100%. Definitely see it in a theatre. That's probably one of the most, before we jump into spoilers, yep. was the most confusing part with the whole HBO Max stuff. Oh, Jesus Christ. I, yeah, like, that hurts. Yeah. I mean, we weren't a big fan of it in the first place, but, um, my God, this is the perfect case for it. Mm-hmm. Be a theatrical film. But to jump into that, you know, when you get to that part where Paul makes that executive decision at the very end of let's join these people, you know, let's let's be one, that feels like a conclusive part of the journey. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, that makes sense that that's where you want to sort of end the episode, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's a way of him taking, you know, making executive decisions now as the as the new he- um, head of his uh, yeah, the family. Duke, the Duke, as um, they call him. And which are the Atreides uh, house. And um, on top of that, you know, mixing from, sort of changing from that colonialism sort of objective of going in, exploiting the resources, exploiting the land and leaving and capitalising on that, kind of shifting that from that ideology that his, that his father had and, you know, his family were originally sent there for, mm-hmm. shifting it more into sort of assimilation and amalgamation. Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's, it, it becomes a different approach. And as a, as a wider story, that's a perfect midpoint because yeah. now you're changing the direction of the story. But as in within a self-fulfilled film, that's Paul, you know, fulfilling a part of his destiny for of sure. making that executive choice. And we sort of see where that destiny could potentially take him in this film too through one of his visions, you know, when mm. we're seeing um, him sort of conquering the, the the galaxy with, you know, the resources gained from 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 Dune and, and you know, from this planet and yep. of... Um, is it Araxes, is it? Just got to double check. Yeah, it. yeah. This is what I mean with all the names. Arrakis. Yeah, Arrakis, that's it. Arrakis. Um... Morocco. Like we sort of see, yeah, with you know, and him conquering with the the Furman people, um, yep. yeah, and sort of the the full like capabilities of that, you know, because obviously he's got the blue eyes, and 
which is you know a byproduct of the this resource this spice that yeah. you know when you have exposure to it for a period of time it chemicals in your eye changed to be and, it, and it's a good visual to show like him being almost indoctrinated into this group although i wouldn't call it indoctrination but yeah yeah um by being a part of them now so to speak yeah it, it's definitely it's an, it's an interesting i think it's a good point i mean and then, and then it gives like a little teaser of one of the things we're going to be seeing you know, some of the cool things we'll see in the second film oh yeah with the the um, guy white riding the worm 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 rider <laughs> that did i did see a letterbox comment that asked like oh do we get to see timmy ride the worm and they were like, no, not yet. <laughs> but that said, it's all a big tease to what comes through, but without feeling like an advertisement. No. Because, and you can feel it, because again, the film was made, it can't be an advertisement. I mean, you could argue that the film was made to convince the studio to fund a second one. I guess it just comes back to, but, if you watch like The Fellowship of the Ring. Exactly. It's not an advertisement for the the second and the third film no. even the second film is not an advertisement for the third film it's just stages in the journey yeah, it's the continuation of the story yeah it's exactly it and i when i heard people say that i was obviously a little worried because that invokes in me like watching the marvel films that's what i get invoked when i'm watching the solo stuff is it's just an ad for the next one it's an ad for the next yeah. one i get that feeling watching those films certainly not watching dune it's funny with that yeah because people taking that high horse critiquing dune for it are the ones that liked infinity war and in all infinity war is is to sorry what's the what's the first one end game no end game's the second one yes <laughs> one is just lead, like one is just an advertisement for the other yeah well well for me it's all the solo ones especially it all ends with you know such and such will return in this film and um, it's just more overt, and I and I didn't get that feeling here. You're right. This feels like more of a Fellowship of the Rings. It's the start of a new journey. Yeah. It it felt completely natural. That and the, again, the pacing I thought was really, really great in that sense. Especially the lull that's created in that third act that leads up to sort of the the duel that they have. Mm-hmm. Now, the duel is not in the Lynch version. My guess is it's not in the original novel, because that was the one thing that felt a little contrived in terms of we need to pad out the ending of the story was that that last minute duel that um that paul has to sort of to win so to speak well it sort of also allows him to be um invested in their culture like he's allowed to be um inducted into their into yeah their, into yeah. the Furman's sort of ways because he honors it through uh, this sort of trial by combat right um i just remember thinking like that's, that's an odd beat because it felt like they almost retconned it on the spot as in, like, they mm. kind of accepted him, and then one character's like, wait, I want to fight him. I kind of got that vibe. I wonder if this is in the novel or not. I'm not too sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, knowing how the full story ends, I reckon there's a reason they put it in here in terms of some sort of part two bookend. But that's all I'm going to say about that. Okay. Um, so I think I it was just a way did. of, um, obviously, because of how epic some of the fights were leading throughout the story mm. it sort of felt very a very soft note to finish on so they needed some form of climactic resolution yeah, to sort yeah. of consummate the character arc paul's undergone in the last two and a half hours especially because you know we know he has this ability this voice ability where he can make people with the right sort of tone do what he wants to do for him yep um and it's you know he's sort of this amalgamation of, of, of witchcraft and then sort of like his house code and honor, you know, Oscar Isaac, his dad is the, the patriarch of, of his house until he dies. And so it's sort of that, um, I saw that it has a lot of comparisons to sort of, uh, you know, William Shakespeare's Henry V story. Um, oh, okay. 
which was you know a couple of years ago made into a film starring Timothy Chalamet, King. So <laughs> that's funny. It was pretty pretty funny. Um, that's a fun fact right there. It was. Um, <laughs> so basically, yeah, I definitely think it was kind of in there to sort of just give a bit of a conclusion, just to kind of pad a little bit more of that connection, particularly with his character in Zendaya, who don't yeah. actually meet each other until the until last the 20, end, yeah. you know, 15 minutes of the film. Um, I did like the joke of of what she does for 85% of the movie is just dramatically turn around and look, <laughs> um, which isn't that inaccurate is, at that all. Is, that is true. Between that and Batista just screaming is pretty much the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were, there were a couple of moments there, the film... There's only like two moments I can remember where they even tried to do like jokes, for example, the whole like, oh, smile, I am smiling, that those little moments. But other than that, it's pretty straight-laced and... Well, that's what I like about it. Serious, yeah. I actually walked out. I went and saw this film with uh, Oliver, or like our mm. mutual friend, and um, I said, I was like, one thing I really liked about this film is it didn't conform to like an MCU Disney formula. It was like, you are going to just enjoy this world, and this world's not really a jokey kind of world. It didn't do quips for quips' sake, you know? Like, yeah, there was like one or two in the first 10 minutes, and then it sort of... Ignore from that point on. Respect a world where it's not trying. One of our one of my biggest positives of twenty forty nine was at least he wanted to. He was very open exploring the world, like yeah, and building the lore up and not. He definitely, you know, obviously, sense of humor was not huge in that film either. Prominent in that film, no. Um, well, well, it's interesting because one of my one of my reactions twenty forty nine was almost the reverse opposite of how it characters are almost too emotional. There's like every five minutes is a character you know, crying and, and, like, overwhelmed with emotion. I remember actually kind of having the opposite effect of not liking that either. Mm. But this one doesn't do that either. Doesn't, I mean, there's obviously emotional scenes in here, yeah. but it, it didn't feel like it was bombarded with it. A lot of it is, again, straight-laced, and a lot of it's very political as well. Yeah. Um, characters get angry, for example, um, which actually leads me to one of my favourite, I guess, themes of the story. And it's a pretty overt theme. It's not subtle at all. But this idea of, of you know, the resources and, the, and them coming in to take the resources and, and, you know, the land, the harsh land fighting back and almost the selfishness of them being like, you set us up to fail. Mm-hmm. And it's like, of course they didn't. This is just how it is. This is the land. No one set you up for anything. Yeah. yeah at least, you know, at least that's kind of how well, I see it thematically. Within the world, but I, I, they also, you know, obviously with the... the br- the emperors so obviously you know right. in this this world there's an emperor that every house serves it's very much like a monarchical sort of uh, structure with the systems yep. um withdrew this this group that were quite brutal um and it really just turned out to be a power play to get rid of the atreides household because right, the, obviously yeah. the emperor lines there, there's that ongoing thing of wanting to kill them yeah which the Lynch version very clearly, when characters literally turn to the camera and like kill someone, turns the camera. That's what I'm gonna do to Paul when I get my hands on him. Yeah, like th- this is what we're talking about with the '84 version being very overt. <laughs> yeah, and it's very clear that it's obviously just a, a move to ensure that the Atreides household that has this sort of strength of of military and the sort of more conventional systematic strength. And then also this power with, with Paul having this ability of the voice, which he's the only male known to have that voice mm. power. And there's a whole conversation about that, like it's wasted on a man. And, and yeah, because obviously sisterhood. his mother, Lady Jessica, mm-hmm. 
um, obviously the expectation was that she would have a daughter and a sort I love of how normal the names are. That's always the, th- the thing that was... I'll read you the letterbox review that I found. How are you going to birth... Oh, wait, I want to double check. Ah, it's fine. Who cares? So the review states... How are you going to birth the chosen one with unlimited, undiscovered, powerful destiny to unite civilizations in the far reaches of the universe and call him Paul? <laughs> it's true. That's a brilliant review from Jay. Simply named Jay on Letterboxd. Yeah, it was um, very funny. Speaking of the other names, exactly. Because <laughs> it was like, you know, you're so used to like sci-fi and high fantasy drama and stuff, everyone having kind of very unique names. Yeah. And, Sort of fantastical names and it's like Lady Jess. or Gagwaga. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, so I find it's that Paul, yeah, Paul and <laughs> Jessica, and it's like cool. It's like funny as, but yeah, yeah. No, it's obviously really interesting because obviously then they're basically uh, they are brought to that land just as sort of a move to wipe them out because they have the locals that are willing to. You know, they don't like them there. And even mm. even if um, the Atreides household's actually coming in with very positive intentions, coming in and and asking them to sort of co- co- you know, have an allegiance together so they can have this sort of all-terrain army yeah. to combat, um, you know, sort of the retaliating households and, and even the emperor themselves. And obviously that doesn't sort of last very long simply because most of the, the Atreides... Uh, house is wiped out over the course of the over the f- the film, mm. with the exception of Paul and and, and Lady Jessica, and yeah. um, it it is very, but it's sort of like the whole point of the film is to understand that the best way of combating this on this world is to find give this world back to its sort of original first inhabitants and mm, allow the them natives, to, yeah, exactly, yeah. No, I, d- I definitely, I definitely know where you're coming because there is an orchestration there to kill them. They are being set up yeah. in the grand scheme of things, um, but I, I still like the idea of the selfishness of of going out into that land, uh, and this thing's going to work perfectly fine because it's like the it's one of the hatches that breaks off, isn't it? Yeah. And they're unable to get the spice, and he says, "Screw mm-hmm. the spice." Um, bunch of lines that are literally identical from the '84 version, so they must have all been taken from the novel, mm-hmm. pretty much word for word. Um, yeah, no, but I think I mean that all works on the scale. I mean that scene alone, the um sort of the initial I guess harvesting and then the worm attack comes in is just so intense. That's one of the greatest like scenes I've ever seen in the cinema. Like in terms of an impact and just how like overwhelmingly epic it is, like that was just mind blowing. Yeah. Especially when like Shallow starts to like zone out and <laughs> Roller has to go get it. Yeah. Oh, it's so spice. Good. It's getting to him. Yeah, yeah, I have to. I have to give props now. You know, obviously bringing up the the stacked cast. This is mm. crazy. How many people were in this? This is the first time Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem have been together since No Country for Old Men. Oh, which was pretty. Was a nifty. I didn't think about that. Um, and they're yeah, they're in the scene together, aren't they? Yeah. they're in the room. Yeah, look at that. That was that was a pretty cool little uh, little extra fact for you. But yeah, yeah obviously you this cast is crazily stacked predominantly with actors that have become very popular in i think the last decade um yeah especially. yeah it's, it's definitely a very modernized cast like you got like patrick stewart and stuff in the 80s version but it's it's not a lot of 80s stars it's not a star-studded mm. film you know for example but like here is obviously it's a big selling point i mean all the, the, a lot point, of the posters yeah. have got every it's just their faces exactly yeah. 
um i mean you got your abstract posters as well but like yeah a lot of it's just their faces it's the star power of a film like this which is part of the reason i guess is they have to sell this to a studio to make part two is to get an audience to watch it because of its cast true the fact that zendaya is so prominently involved even though she's essentially just a collection of visions in this in this version of the film Mm -hmm. but um no i mean they're all great yeah they're all great in it they're really well cast i think that's that's definitely the um yeah the they all play and they all don't feel like they're being put in there because of their name like for name recognition i think I think prominently one of my favorite performances in it was was Jason Momoa's performance. I actually liked him a lot in this, yeah. And I, I found that really fascinating because it's you know it's he's obviously you know played Aquaman. It's a very cheesy performance. He's obviously yeah. he's got know, the baby face in this, no beard. <laughs> yeah, you know, obviously he for the most part is not considered a, a relative, you know, a super strong actor. He's just right. a very good-looking man. Um, you got Dave Bautista in the corner, like I make everything better when I'm in it. Oh, God, he frustrates me. And, yeah, definitely um, <laughs> think his performance is fantastic in, in this. Um, he has one of my, yeah, one of my favorite performances in it. But it's it's really interesting. I also read that Rebecca Ferguson, his mother, the one who plays Lady Jessica, is only 12 years older than Timothy Chalamet. Oh, that's funny. Which is kind of like... She does yeah, I look. I actually admit she does look a little young to be his mother. I did. I did find it because I obviously that's one of the big promotional things they put out was them two together. I'm pretty sure it's going to be the thumbnail actually for this episode. But yeah, it's like they don't look like mother and son. In, yeah, I would buy them more as like photo. boyfriend girlfriend, which was like, oh, which was oh. where it got weird because it was like, yeah, I was like, where's a very young mother? But sure. <laughs> well, it's like, speaking She's of just that, aging really well. Exactly. Exactly. They're allowed to. <laughs> But this actually transitions pretty well because, like we said, the whole expectation of having a daughter and, and the son who sort of... Um, he needs to prove himself and his worth. I mean, that leads to the the mm. scene where he has to put his hand in the box sort of the to do the, the test of pain, which mm-hmm. I guess is sort of a test of this idea of self-control, you know, if he's able to, to you know, if we send him out in the field. Yeah. Will he survive, essentially? And... It's interesting directly comparing this to the Lynch film where the scenes are very similar, very similar dialogue, even like the the size of the needle that's about to go into his neck is a very similar scene, mm-hmm. regardless of the aesthetic stuff, which I'll get into soon. But one of the key differences is the Lynch version actually shows uh, inserts of his hand like burning inside the box. And it's great to see you know two films like this that are, identical in terms of script and plot but the directors take different visions from them and i love the idea in this one you do not see what's happening Mm -hmm. inside the box it's all i don't want to say ethereal but we don't know if it's physical pain emotional pain allows us i think to gain a level of empathy because we get to we sort of immerse ourselves in that scene where we think what would we find what like we're now visualizing our own incredibly painful thing which is way more perceptile you know yeah um, yeah and Chalamet's acting is obviously top-notch in the scene so his reaction yeah to, are... to portray that that pain um without i i don't think he says i think the 84 version hasn't been like oh it burns it burns pretty sure it doesn't say that in 2021 mm. but like just removing the specificity of it i thought was a really clever idea because you're right it makes it more like we can apply our own ideas to what that pain yeah, must feel like, or even feel like, uh, feel like or see like, I should say. Um, and then the other thing that this one does, the other one doesn't, is it focuses more on Lady Jessica's reaction 
the idea she's you know in the back sort of almost in tears of oh god i just sent my son in there to mm. die and she's almost shocked relieved but also shocked that he survived and mm. i just thought it was a really cool way to play that scene just in terms of perspective it's a little different it's very interesting to have sort of a mother-son road trip film <laughs> yeah no i wasn't expecting a film of this scale to just be like a family sort of yeah. tight-knit family drama but then again star wars is too yeah a lot of these big sci-fi elements have really tight rooted family elements to it it's it is very interesting because obviously yeah it is definitely got like the finer the family dynamic is particularly in the first half of the film but obviously after um you know sort of the attack um from the uh god see this is the other thing i should just have all the names on a standby (laughs) what's the house yeah i'm always i I always take for granted that i know like the harkonnen harkonnen um the, like the Star Wars names, but after this they is new for attack, um, sort of, you know, the the main city, and and Oscar Isaac gets separated from, um, and sort of like left, pretty much essentially to die, yes. and sort of sacrifice himself to try and wipe out the Lee, you know, the head of of House Harkonnen to yeah. sort of end well, the, the conflict the, before it the starts. Baron is there, yeah, it's who is like this big slug like man, <laughs> played by um, Stellan Skarsgård. Mm. Um, quite effectively <laughs> yeah yeah definitely um, you know it's just essentially a, a road trip film with uh, Timothy Chalamet and uh, Lady Jessica which you yeah. don't kind of see that too often I think So no it's a cool dynamic well, and you're right we don't see it as much because they're not sort of they are equals but they're also you know she's obviously you know got the maternal side to her which is a very interesting balance you know when they're in the, the little sand tent Yes. And he's having visions and freaking out. She's sort of like subdued, but also, you know, sort of having that sort of maternal yeah. care and fear for what, what her son's going through. It goes back to the, the scene with the box where it's like she's... The maternal side of her is like, I just sent my son out to die, but she had to do it. Mm. And she tells him that he has to do it. And I think there's that... um, Not divide, but, the, you know, there's... It's something in her that she has to struggle with is the duality of being a paternal or a maternal parent to a child, but then also having a responsibility to lead up, you know, with her peers and, and all of that mm-hmm. and her legacy. And of course, she is pregnant to a daughter, as we learn in this film, mm-hmm. that Paul sort of just knows through his visions, which is, um, again, that's another example of the Lynch films is like the, pl- the plotting is so weird because those all happen out of order. It feels really meticulous in, in the Villeneuve version where things sort of happen in a correct mm. order and then they feel natural um, while Lynch version just sort of does everything in the wrong way. Like, I think the assassination... If I, Remind me if I'm wrong, but when the when the little thing comes in to assassinate Pole, mm-hmm. that little, like, flying dart thing, does that happen before the um, spice harvesting scene with the worm? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. in the Lynch version it happens after... And it just feels so weird and out of place. Mm-hmm. That that's just I, I just remember like weird things like that happening in different orders, just kind of making it more convoluted and confusing. Yeah, that's weird. Which is really strange. That's now David Lynch, but yes, sure. exactly. <laughs> well, he, I will say this: I appreciate David Lynch is quite open about how bad his version of Dune is, because mm. I never I went into it not thinking it was going to be bad. I was like, I'm sure it's good. I'm sure like. It's just obviously kind of old and cheesy now with the sort of a Flash Gordon aesthetic to it. Mm-hmm. A bit more Star Trek-y than, than like the epic that you're getting here. But my God, the the script is... It's running a treadmill. <laughs> like, 
like the fact that the last 30 minutes of that film is what they're going to spend two and a half hours on in the next film is like thank god because <laughs> <laughs> so much happens so quickly it's insane but anyway we're not talking about yeah the second half of the book i just wanted to compare those two and especially aesthetically where you have the flash gordon aesthetic versus something like this that's a bit more meticulous and especially the cinematography so wide and, and vast and, and scope doesn't feel like you're on a tiny little set and mm. all the characters have big eyebrows because sci-fi <laughs> yeah it's fair yeah did you have anything else you'd like to discuss um i want to talk a bit more about the the sci-fi elements Beautiful. of let's talk about the the shields so of course they have these shield things oh that's so sick but yeah it's cool it's like, really cool best best um sort of because i think of halo when i think of like that uh, yeah. weird sort of shield and when your shields are down you're you're actually vulnerable and it's like really interesting because it's like i think that's the best depiction i'd ever seen of it in a film like yeah. that shield like <laughs> you should see how it's depicted in the 84 version it looks know, like right. roblox <laughs> Oh, really <laughs> it looks terrible it's so funny it was really nifty yeah um, um no i liked it as well and what i liked about it because you're right there's a specificity of of obviously like projectiles or flying objects and bullets are not going to do much because you have plenty of time to flick them before they penetrate mm-hmm. the shield but um obviously like a dart coming from directly behind where oscar isaac's physically unable to reach back and grab the dart before it penetrates i like that just like the simple weakness of a person being like not flexible enough to catch the, the dart mm. and that's what essentially kills him like i like i like those elements and that knives can like slowly penetrate and make it go from blue to red for example so i i really like the shields as well the very specific uh role that they play yeah. um throughout the film it feels a little video gamey but they portray it very cool yeah but the sci-fi is kind of video well, game. exactly you got to have those elements i like the flying Sort of the objects with like the little dragonfly wings. Oh, the, the little dragonflies. That was Inter- pretty cool, yeah. Interesting, because uh, they are very overtly dragonflies and it's like mm. very interesting sort of the way that they like move their wing, like the, the wing system works and stuff. But yeah, they are quite nifty. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. And I looked at the, um, I think it's Corridor Crew, they did a Dune video comparing the two films, visual effects, mm. uh, visual effects wise. And that was one of the things I was saying is like how impossibly hard it is to nail the motion blur in something like that. Because if you freeze frame it, you can technically see all three variations of the wings on each end, which is like a super fast um, sort of motion blur in terms of how the shutter would read it, for example. But no, I just thought that was really interesting. And I, and I do like the designs of that. Um, you, you see every bloody variation of flying objects. <laughs> oh yeah, big time. In this film, all sorts of things. Um what was the other one that I wanted to mention really quick? Oh, you know what? I will say this with the voice. So did you? how did you actually like the portrayal of the voice? Obviously, this sort of more demanding thing that it almost works like the force in a way. Yeah, it's like the Jedi mind trick. Yeah, thing. yeah, pretty much. No, I liked it. It had like a demonic sort of feel to it. So mm. it had like a... Um, the closest thing I could compare it to was, was it was something that was more like a manipulating whisper more than anything. With okay. that, that really echo that it had on the on the end of it but with a with a real demonic undertone which is sort of similar to something that like the first lord of the rings film gandalf like uses his like mm, yep. sort of commanding voice and that's sort of the the tone i think they were trying to go for it but i thought it was quite nifty yeah cool i think it, it kind of speaks as well because i, I like think that he does like that he gets good at it but not like he doesn't become proficient in it yeah it's just good enough to 
free the gag off of his mum so yeah. then she can do the rest of the job. So you're right. They kind of build up to it in a natural way as opposed to something like Wonder Woman 1984 where she's like, oh, by the way, I learned how to make planes invisible literally the second that they need to do it to get mm-hmm. out of danger. <laughs> so they, they do it with the voice and, and um, the shields. and every, They sort of establish those things early enough so that, that it makes sense when they eventually use those things to, to get out of jams and whatnot. Um, yeah, I don't know how I feel about the voice, to be honest. I kind of liked it more in the Lynch version because it has a similar demonic sort of tone to it, mm-hmm. but I think there was just some subtle thing about it. It felt less manipulated in the Lynch version, which almost worked more for me. Like, mm. they weren't screaming. I, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but... I also think a lot of these things... It's sci-fi. You need these really fantastical elements. But it's like, unless you do them really right... And this film does do it right. They can come off really silly really easily. Mm. Um, and I think it's worth probably just pointing that out. Um, I would love to read the novel to to understand what the written word sort of um, implied. With how the voice works and the shields and all sure. of those sci-fi elements. It would be really interesting. But yeah. Um, I want to talk about... The, I mean, we already talked about Hans Zimmer, the score... Um, you think it's immaculate. It's great. Yeah. I think it's definitely great. I don't know if it's going to be like the tune's going to be as memorable as like his Pirates theme, for example, like mm. the Inception music. We can sort of like note those. I'm just going to remember those like what I assume are like some like African-esque or I think it's predominantly a Middle Eastern reference they're going for. Definitely. The, yeah. the, the singing every time something like slightly dramatic happens. The throat music. The, <laughs> the meeting. So good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what I love about that, you're definitely, yeah, you're right, Middle Eastern thing. But in terms of, like, those African drums, I, what I liked is that you almost associate those in your mind with, like, a jungle aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I think, like, Black Panther, because Black Panther does a similar thing with its score um, in terms of just, like, the actual sonic sound of it. But as opposed to it being set on a jungle, which is where my mind would usually go to, it's actually juxtaposed with, you know, the desert and, and the land, which, you're right, it's definitely more Middle Eastern visually so it does make sense it does match but i, I like the just juxtaposition that i noticed um from that and i think th- there are two i actually did make an effort to listen to the soundtrack from start to finish like on its own um and yeah it's very great it's very experimental i like the fall is probably my favorite track mm. which i'm pretty sure is the track that plays during the sort of that um failed heist worm attack sequence um from memory but yeah oh, it's a very good score yeah i really enjoyed the uh the score that was it was probably one of my like you said it's very tough Zimmer's obviously got a very proficient profile so <laughs> he's, got, he's, he's done a lot of music god you hear past. that you hear that Pirates of the Caribbean one you're like wow it's just fantastic um, yeah but, I think but that's I don't think this film needs to have like a pirate test like you remember every note in your mind mm. because this is more abstract it's a bit more um, mixed with all different sorts of sounds and, and ambience and it creates that tone which yeah. is this? Which is what you want? But yeah, I don't think it serves as like a, you know, you're gonna sit down and be like, dun, 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 dun. you know, you remember all the notes, which is fine. I think that, I think it works for for Dune. Works mm, in that regard. I agree. But yeah, cool. You got anything else you'd like to touch on, buddy? No, oh, I think I'm happy to jump into my highlight scenes. Highlight if you scenes. Are. Yeah. Oh, that's a toughie. Mm. I I have two. I have one, a bombastic one, and then a quiet one. I really, look, I uh, would say I'm a big fan of the 
I probably I probably will just make this yeah say this as my highlight scene. I really like the father son dialogue on um, on the original home planet on the original okay. home planet. Yeah. Um, it's a really strong um, performance scene between both Chalamet and Isaac. That's their first scene together, isn't it? It's a very and yeah, it's uh, so I found out that's that's shot in Norway, which uh, I thought it was Scotland. So it was whatever. yeah, I could see it being Scotland, but no, that makes sense. That makes um, sense. So and it's really pretty, and he sort of talks about like the the response. He gives his Uncle Ben esque speech. <laughs> you know? um, not to bring Spider Man too much up this month. I'm already getting Spider-Man it's already going to come. Already getting fatigued. Yeah, from coming. That. Oh yeah, they put um, out the new trailer. Yeah, sorry, we, we'll sorry, talk about that sorry, in the uh, after this review, um, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a really strong scene. That scene and then the introduction scene for... They all have really good intro scenes too, like a lot of the ensemble cast with right, Sh- yeah. Chalamet's Paul. Um, but that scene in Brolin's introductory scene. Oh, yeah, with like the fight, fighting. the practicing, yeah. yeah. We sort of get an understanding of that sci-fi lore with the shields. Um, and then we see as well, that, that reminds me of two other things, is like the floating light fixture things, which mm. again goes to my complaint with 2049. I hate when... The lighting was just sort of random and unmotivated film. This does, firstly, because most of it's a desert, so it was a lot of natural lighting that had mm-hmm. to sort of nail anyway. But I like those little floating light fixtures that would float around. Um, and what was the other thing? The the sort of the little bowl thing that creates a projection and like explains the lore of like, this is mm. what this is. And this planet, this is the, the dance, for example, like the, the sand dance to avoid the yeah. worms and things. Like I like those the sci-fi and touches. And probably there. the Momoa death scene. I think that's, oh, a, yeah, that's, that's a great scene. That's a badass hallway sort of fight shot. Yeah. And it goes and it has like a real Boromir esque feel to it. Mm. Um so Yeah. Full credit. Really like Jason Moe's character. Kinda hoped he would make it to the second film. <laughs> but unlucky. <laughs> Might be a flashback at the start, you never know. I actually have to before I ask you about your highlight scene. Okay. Do you think Brolin's dead? Josh Brolin's character? Well he doesn't die on screen. I've seen the eighty four version, so I do know the answer to this question, well, but I cannot tell you. Okay. <laughs> how, I respect that. How boring, that. How boring of an that. answer. It was like, one. the biggest thing I have to say, my final takeaway from this before I throw it back to you is, I liked that I walked out of this cinema, I like this cinematic experience, yep. and I sat there with Oliver and just talked about the law for like 35 minutes. Yeah, that's cool. Like having that discussion about, oh, well, this thing and this thing. And I haven't had that experience with the sci-fi or fantasy epic for years. Like, Game of Thrones earlier seasons might have that, like, level of discussion, which this definitely has that Game of Thrones feel to it. Yeah. Um, Last time we walked out of Star Wars, we just sort of sat miserably in the car. (laughs) We didn't say anything. Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, normally I'd come out of an MCU film, it's like you said, it's either it's advertising for the next one or it's like, oh, that was everything that... I needed an answer. It was answered. Yeah, yeah. I don't have any hypotheticals or anything. I don't really... Yeah. Whereas this was like enthralling in discussion. Yeah. That's almost the good thing about having so few chapters. It's not going to be a trilogy. It's, it's I guess, a duology is what you would call it. Um, that it, There's so much to introduce in the first film, especially for laymen like us who haven't read the book. But then part two is going to have a lot of the conclusion, which we can then get really invested in. For sure. Um, which is exciting. So what about you, Jake? Yeah, so uh, like I alluded to before, my bombastic highlight scene has to be, again, the um, the spice harvesting scene with the worm and just like that, the visual aesthetic of the worm is just so cool. And The, the use of it, tension over the oh, intercom. It's incredible, yeah. But then like the way it would liquefy the sand as they're both getting, him and Josh Brolin are getting like sucked into the floor and 
I just, I, again, this, it's one of those things. And I remember telling, um, you know, a friend of the show, Stephen, about uh, what well, his film, um, Piano. It's not, it's not the piano. I think it's called Piano. Where, you know, I told him, like, my favorite shot or my favorite scene in your film, I can't even explain it. It's just all the elements came together in, like, this one shot or in the case of doing this one scene mm-hmm. where the music the visuals, the performance, sort of the sci-fi elements of it, the visual effects, like it all came together for this one like breathtaking five, ten minute sequence um, that I almost can't even describe beyond that is why it worked for me and was just such a great sitting in a chair, head back up, oh mm. my God, <laughs> just brilliant stuff. And the and the smaller scene that I wanted to give a shout out to is the one where Paul's walking, they have all the trees there and the guy's watering the trees and they have that sort of almost philosophical discussion of how much water it takes to keep those trees alive like years worth of like a supply and oh like would it not just be worth holding the water and he's oh were they ancient or their heritage said something along those lines i just like that little not at the wider Mm. idea of resources and where it goes but just the idea of heritage and the idea of yeah we could be saving the water but like the, the their priorities are different you know, it's not about getting the spice. It's about surviving in this scene or in that scene. It's about keeping the heritage of these trees and a memory of what once was. And I like that. I like that theme a lot. No worries. Well, Dune is currently out in cinemas near you. Mm. Jake, speaking of cinemas near me, what comes to cinemas and streaming services this week? I thought you were going to say near me, streaming and services near you. I thought you were going to flip it around. Um, this is a huge week, Zeke. So let's uh, huge. put your seatbelts on, boys. It's coming to Netflix this week. Is Back to the Outback, which is an animated comedy that sees Australia's deadliest creatures plot a daring escape from the zoo. Ooh. Gotta watch it. <laughs> is that like Madagascar? Is yeah, that... it's Madagascar, the Aussie version. Um, coming to Disney Plus is The Last Jewel, which, little surprise, it feels early, but I'll take it. Coming to Prime this week and... Coming to binge as well on the same week. Cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Coming to both services this week. And now Zeke. Oh, I'll, I'll quickly mention uh, Paramount Plus. You have a Christmas proposal, which is an exclusive for it. You also got World War Z and Transformers the last night. I saved Stan the last. There's two films coming to Stan this week. I was shocked. It's a little annoying. It's a little late. Wish it came out maybe six months ago, but that's okay. Before Sunrise and Before Sunset come to Stan this week. It's hilarious, but How not midnight. How funny is that? Not midnight, so you're still screwed. There. Still stuff. <laughs> How funny is that? I I think this is the first time those films have ever been available in streaming. That is pretty crazy. They just heard our reviews and they were like, "We need to get them. We need to get those films stat." It's <laughs> all <laughs> so the Nitram cast and crew <laughs> coming together. We need to make this happen. Yep. I love it. All right, now coming to Cinema Zeke. Here we go. We have Gorillas, Son Machine, Live from Kong which is a cinematic event that features songs from both the Song Machine Project and revered classics from the band Gorillaz. So that's exciting. I think it's okay. like a one-time screening, I think, at Luna. Uh, yes, Luna on the 8th. Luna Lidaville, of course. So this Wednesday. We also have Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. So if you're a fan of the video game franchise, there you go. I imagine it's terrible. Mm-hmm. That's my, my assumption. Uh, we have Ghostbusters Afterlife which sees a single mother and her two children, played by McKenna Grace and Finn Wolfhart, respectively, move to a new town where they discover a connection to the original Ghostbusters. So it's a sequel, yes? It's like a sequel sequel? I guess. I figured, yeah, it does take place, like, canonically after the first, I guess, two films. But not the one with 
the all-female cast. I don't think so, if I had to guess. But I'm so out of the loop. We we did the original Ghostbusters back in like the... The only God, one. Se- only episode one. 70. Yeah, like 70-something. I can't remember. <laughs> the only one that exists. I'm hearing this is great. I'm hearing this is really good. Oh. So, you never know. This could be something. Don't Look Up is the latest film from Adam McKay and stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. Lawrence. Excuse me. So it's playing in cinemas a few weeks ahead of its Netflix release later this month. So if you want to catch it early, you definitely can. As far as I'm aware of, this is his first, if you want to call it the trilogy, obviously the big short vice in this film. I think this is the first one that's more of a fictionalized events. I think it's about astronauts who like find that a meteor is going to crash to Earth soon. Um, so it's a bit more of a fictionalized thing with the same style as his previous ones, which I personally would have been a little worried about. I'm like, oh, is he going to do all right not straying from real events? Mm. But he did direct the first episode of Succession, and he's a showrunner, so he's proven himself to be damn fine <laughs> at the fictionalized stuff. Damn fine. But um, we'll see. I'm excited for that. Would you catch it before Netflix, or you, you just wait? Probably not. Nah, I'd yeah. probably just wait. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot coming out this month, so... There is, yeah. Um, It makes, like, sort of films like that one. I liked Vice, and I really liked The Big Short. Mm. Um. And, yeah, we'll, both and we'll definitely watch it when it's on Netflix, but it's, um, yeah, if it's coming to Netflix, it's a, it's a very weird middle ground, isn't it? Where it's like some of these you want to catch in the cinema. Like I like what people saying, I can't understand why you'd watch Dune on HBO Max. Yeah, you? of course. But, uh, yeah, maybe. So here we go. If I've got a free day. And it's yeah, well, that, that's it. And yeah, and uh, this is all for the Oscar campaign stuff. It's so they're eligible. That's what this all is. The same with... The Harder They Fall and Passing, The Power of the Dog. Like, they're films that would have just gone straight to Netflix if not for the Oscar criterion yeah. or criteria to, to be eligible. Um, but yeah, it is what it is. Sing 2 is the animated star-studded sequel to the original film, which I actually liked quite a bit, the original Sing. Okay. So even though it's obviously, oh, look, celebrities sing music and give us money. I get it, but I liked it. I'm a softie for it. Uh, Red Rocket, which is the latest film from Sean Baker has advanced screenings at Luna from this Saturday the 11th, follows a washed-up porn star who clashes with his estranged wife when returning to his hometown of Texas. I'm hearing this is excellent. Sounds pretty cool. If it's half as good as Florida Project, then we're set. We're sorted. I'm very keen. It's very exciting. Now, there's been a film that's been previewing the last couple of weeks, Zeke. Mm-hmm. It's finally going to get its wide release. It is very exciting. It is very exciting. But Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching... The French Dispatch. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into The French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. For decent people. It's supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the best expatriate journalists of his time. Berenson, Sazerac, Kremens, Roebuck-Wright. These were his people. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. We take as the subject of tonight's lecture, Mr. Moses Rosenthal. Certainly the loudest artistic voice of his rowdy generation. Simone Naked Cell Block J Hobby Room. I want to buy it. It's not for sale. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes. In short, the picture was a sensation. The kids did this. 
obliterated a thousand years of Republican authority in less than a fortnight. What do they want? Freedom. Full stop. I'm naked, Mrs. Cremens. I can see that. Wes Anderson's latest film is a love letter to a journalist set in the outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city. It's a pretty vague one. Very vague. Yeah. But I like it. No, like it's good. It. Going pretty blind. This will be our third film from Wes Anderson, so he'll equal our highest director. It'll be our fourth. Fourth? Yeah. Fourth one. Wow, so he'll be number one. There you go. Number oh, yeah, one on yeah, top. Rocket, yeah, we yeah. Bottle Rocket, Moonrise Kingdom, and Mr. Fantastic Mr. Fox, which so we just take, did a few weeks ago. He'll take he'll take the pole position. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and he's still, there's plenty of other films we can uh, we can jump on. So. 100%. Well, I'm very excited yeah. for this film. Missed yeah, out, unluckily, on early screenings. Yeah, they sold out. We were going to go and they sold out. But it's okay. It's actually worked out schedule-wise pretty well for us, so... Yeah. Um, I do have a friend. I'm reluctant to call her a friend. We've met once. An acquaintance. I have an acquaintance um, that I stalked her letterbox recently. She actually has reviewed this film. I'm going to find out what score she gave it. I want the poster so bad. Oh, it's a good poster. Yo, the last night in Soho poster. Surely it's out. Yeah. Surely it's just sitting there duck in SX. Duck into... Lunar on SX. <laughs> oh, here we go. So she did write a review. I'm not going to read it, but she gave it four and a half stars. That's high praise. Actually, you know what? I'm going to read the review. This is the most Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson film I've ever watched. What the, What does that mean? We will find out. We will find out. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Star Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with The French Dispatch. <laughs>